0: Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back here. It's been a little while since I've uh, had the privilege of coming and sharing God's Word with you again. So I'm excited to be here again today. And we're going to kick off a, a series today, actually, a three-part series. Uh, we'll interrupt it a little bit next week, but we'll start this week with part one, and then parts two and three will come in the, in the latter part of May so I'm, I'm really happy to, to start this off with you today and, and be here among you all. There's a, a fellow uh, whose name I actually don't know how to pronounce, and a smarter man would have prepared for this, anticipating having to do this in front of a lot of people, but I am not that man, apparently. But anyway, so don't, don't be distracted by my inability to do this and my lack of preparation. My heart was in the right place. But his name was, was Randy Pausch, Pausch, a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. And he became famous towards the end of his life. Many of you may know his story. Uh, he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And in 2007, he gave this famous last lecture, which became a YouTube sensation. And ultimately, a book of the same name was published that had this last lecture in it. And in this last lecture, among many other pieces of advice and wisdom, Randy wrote this. He said, do not tell people how to live their lives. Just tell them stories, and they will figure out how those stories apply to them. Now, whether he knew it or not, Randy was actually very close to describing how biblical stories were meant to work. Uh, The most common form of literature in the Bible is narrative writing. It's often called historical narrative, and this type of writing makes up about 40% of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament as well. Now, two of my favorite Bible scholars define narrative history as purposeful stories, purposeful stories retelling the historical events of the past that are intended to give meaning to and direction for a given people in the present. In other words, you know, narrative history, it's not just merely history, although it's at least that, right? It's stuff that actually happened in time and space. But it's history that's retold to make a point. And there's a professor uh, up at school who remarked to me once that that the purpose of Bible stories is not to say you must and, and you should But the purpose is to give insight into how men and women relate to the eternal God and how God relates to them. And so over these next three weeks, we are going to look at the first three or four years of Elijah's public ministry, this great prophet from the Old Testament. And in order to do that, we're going to read several stories, true stories, things that actually happened And learn how God relates to us and how we relate to him. And so we're going to pick up this story in the book of 1 Kings. Now, the book of Kings is all narrative history. And it begins with one of the most prosperous times for the nation of Israel. Uh, These are truly the golden years for Israel. The golden years for this nation. David, Israel's greatest, most faithful king is at the end of his life, and he's passing the torch to his son, Solomon. And by God's gift, Solomon becomes one of the wisest men ever to have lived. And the nation enjoys prosperity like it has never known before. Uh, In 1 Kings 4.20, it it mentions how numerous the people were. They ate and they drank and they were happy. In 1 Kings 10.27, it notes that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Okay? Very prosperous time. Solomon builds this beautiful temple. God's presence dwells within it. He builds himself an enormous palace. And people from all over the world come to seek him out and seek out his wise counsel. But as he ages, Solomon turns from God he marries other women from other nations uh, who ultimately turn his heart away from the one true God. And as a result, after Solomon's death, God tears away 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel from Solomon's son, and he gives them to his rival, this king named Jeroboam. And Israel's divided now. It's divided into a northern and a southern kingdom Judah in the south, and Israel, or Ephraim, in the north. And Jeroboam, who's a a king and wants to maintain his rule over the north, to try and maintain control over that kingdom, he creates his own cult of worship to rival that of the southern kingdom. He doesn't want people turning back to the king of the south, right? So he creates his own religion, his own series of, of worship events up in the north. He makes temples in Dan and Bethel. He makes idols for worship. He appoints his own priests who are not Levites. He invents his own holy days. And if you know your Old Testament at all, this is all in direct disobedience to numerous commands in the covenant that God made with Israel. And kings during this time had so much power, they had so much authority and control, That as the king went, so went the nation. And this begins Israel's great plunge into idolatry and forsaking God. Now the technical term for this, the technical term for turning away from God and to other gods, is apostasy. So say that with me, apostasy apostasy, right? I wanted really badly to avoid the nerdery of a fancy word today, but it's just, it's the best word, it's the best way to describe what's happening with Israel and its kings. They are turning away from God. They're abandoning him. They're apostates. They're forsaking the God who rescued them from Egypt and made a covenant with them. And so dark times are ahead for Israel. And as we read on in Kings, each king after Jeroboam gets progressively worse until we reach the lowest of the low, which is where we're going to pick up today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to 1 Kings. We're going to start in chapter 16 in verse 29. And I'm going to do something a little daring this morning, and I'm going to read a chapter and a quarter of Scripture here, something we don't we don't do a lot, but I want us to really try and engage with this. This isn't the newspaper or something like that. This is the word of God, right? We just sang that we're hanging on every word. This is God's word preserved for us. And I want you to do the best you can to really engage with what's being said here. Put yourself in the story. Think of the environment, think of what's being said as we listen to what God's Word says. So read with me, please, in First Kings Chapter 16, starting in verse 29, and we'll read through chapter 17. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Eberam, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Galid, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first... Make a small loaf of bread for me, from what you have, and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from his arms, carried him to the upper room, he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So in our first text that we read in chapter 16, we see the rise of a great evil in Israel. And the leader of this great wave of apostasy, of turning away, is King Ahab. And twice we're told that Ahab did more evil than all before him. He commits the sins of Jeroboam, who we talked about earlier, right? And the text said that these sins were were trivial to him. Literally, it says they were a light thing for him to do them. And he continues in this sin of setting up other idols for the people to worship outside of Jerusalem in direct defiance to God's repeated commands in Scripture. And he marries Jezebel, the daughter of a Sidonian king, also against God's commands. And we soon learn later that that Jezebel is zealous for her god, Baal. And she exerts great influence over her husband. She has God's prophets killed and eventually tries to kill Elijah himself. And it says that Ahab worships Baal, again, in direct defiance to the first and second commandments. He builds a temple, an altar for Baal. He makes an Asherah pole, which honors one of Baal's partners, this fertility goddess. And finally, the text closes noting that in Ahab's time, Heel rebuilt Jericho. Right? So in other words, the times are so evil under Ahab, that even Jericho, Jericho, the city cursed by Joshua, the first city destroyed by the Israelites as they came to God's promised land, even Jericho is rebuilt. And he loses his own sons in the process, which fulfills Joshua's prophecy about Jericho uh, and Joshua 6. And so, things are set up here to tell us they've gone horribly wrong. Ahab's apostasy is the worst of the worst, and his wife is worse still. And if we had time to go back and look through the Old Testament, we could cite command after command after command that is being broken in this little introduction. And so what does God do about all this? How how does God respond to this apostasy? Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, we abruptly meet a man named Elijah. And as some of you may have guessed by the title of this series, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God, or my God is Yahweh. Uh, Eli just means my God in Hebrew. And the Jah or the Yah at the end is shorthand for for Yahweh, which is the name that God revealed to Moses uh, back in Exodus. And I wrote all the consonants here, just Y-H-W-H just to respect the the original Hebrew, which didn't yet denote vowels. And every time you see the word LORD in all caps in your Bible, that's the word that's being translated, Yahweh. This is how God chose to reveal himself to his people, with that name that's very closely tied to this verb, which means to be. His name, his identity, God's very self, is wrapped up in perfect being. I am. And most of the time, when you see a name that ends with an ah or yah of some kind in the Old Testament, Yahweh is most likely the name that it's referring to. Abijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Elijah. That's the Yahweh at the end of it. And so as soon as we see that name here, we know that a conflict is brewing, right? Because with Ahab, we just met a man whose God is not Yahweh. And here we meet a man whose name is Yahweh, is my God. And in the text that follows, we see three scenes unfold that definitively show how Elijah lives up to his name. In the first scene, we see Elijah confront Ahab. As the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You see the confrontation already? As Yahweh lives, says Elijah, not Baal, whom I serve, me, Elijah, Yahweh is my God, and I serve him. There will be neither dew nor rain. This is a direct affront to Baal, because Baal was a storm god, and he was thought to provide rain. And as an agrarian society, Israel depended on rain for life more than anything else. Uh, So you can see why it was a temptation for them to worship Baal. In their minds, Baal was the key to their survival and prosperity, uh, much like money might be to us today. And so Elijah confronts this Baal worshiper. And in the text, it doesn't come out, but if you want to get a sense of how bold this is, I mean, how much courage this took from Elijah, imagine walking up to the king of Saudi Arabia, And telling him that as surely as Jesus Christ is Lord, there won't be any oil from the ground until I say so. Right? In other words, your whole economy, your whole basis for power and authority is gone. And by the way, your God is not the true God. So just like today, if the economy went south, if times get tough, the king takes the blame. Right When we have tough times, whether it's fair or not, we blame the president. Israel would blame the king. He was ultimately responsible for the welfare of the nation in the people's eyes. And so immediately after this confrontation, God commands Elijah to go into the wilderness, promising that he'll drink from the brook and he'll get food from the ravens. So let me ask, is Yahweh Elijah's God? Of course, he obeys. And we see straight away that God is faithful. Elijah goes to the ravine, the ravens provide food for him, and he drinks from the brook. Point for point, Elijah's faithful to God. And point for point, God is faithful to his promises. We might just take a moment here to note that this isn't exactly a sweet gig for Elijah, is it? Right? I mean, he's in the wilderness. He's drinking from the brook like an animal. He's getting food scraps from scavenger birds which is kind of nasty if you think about it for two seconds, right? Where did these ravens get this food? Probably from Carrion, right? And they're they're bringing him this, and he's eating it. He sacrifices his own comfort for the sake of obeying the God he serves because Yahweh is his God. And we see God's faithfulness on display again in verse 7. The brook dries up because there's no rain in the land. And this pattern of Elijah's faithfulness and God's faithfulness continues in the next in the next scene, starting in verse eight. The Lord commands Elijah to go to Zarephath, promising that a widow will have provide food for him there. Is Yahweh Elijah's God? Of course. Does God keep His promises? Of course. Elijah goes to Zarephath. He meets a widow. There's miraculous provision for Elijah, the widow, and her son throughout the drought. And all this happens. Verse sixteen says, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Elijah is living up to his name. And you notice a few other things here. Elijah's outside of Israel. Zarephath is in Sidon. The same Sidon ruled by the king whose name is Ethbaal, which means Baal is alive. And this king is the father of Queen Jezebel, who married Ahab. So even here, we have an answer to Ahab's worship of Baal. Even in his home turf, Baal is not God. He's not alive. And even outside of Israel, Yahweh is God. See, in the ancient Near East, they thought gods were very territorial. There was a god of Sidon, there was a god of Israel, right? But no, no, our god is God everywhere, and Baal is not. And secondly, we get a picture of how severe the drought is. The widow is clearly at the end of her provisions, and we essentially find her getting ready to eat what she expects to be her last meal before starving to death. Now, if there's any doubt left in our minds so far in the story, the final scene offers the last bit of affirmation that Yahweh is God and Elijah is his servant. In verse 17, the widow's son becomes ill and dies. And to get a sense of how devastating this would be to the widow, remember that widows were among the most disadvantaged people in the ancient Near East. This woman's son was truly her last and only hope for survival. She couldn't just go get a job and provide for herself. With no husband and no son, she would be confined to a life of begging. uh, Easily exploited or abused by anyone who wished to do so. And this is one of the reasons why there are so many commands to care for widows in Scripture. Uh, it's something unique about God's law. It shows his care for the extremely destitute. And the fact that we're in Sidon indicates that the widow didn't even have those commands, those laws that God set up to protect her. Although it's unlikely in Ahab's time that such laws would even be honored. And so the widow's reaction in verse 18 is unsurprising. unsurprising. Am I being punished for my sin? Is that, is that why you came here? You've just completely destroyed my life and taken away all my hope. But instead of judgment, what she witnesses is the first account in Scripture of somebody being raised from the dead. Elijah takes the boy, prays to God, and the boy is raised back to life. And the widow's final reaction to this miracle is really the, the, the summary heading For everything we just talked about. She says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Turn by turn, point by point, we see Elijah's faithfulness to Yahweh. Yahweh is his God. Turn by turn, point by point, we see that God is faithful to all his promises. And it is he who controls the rain, not Baal whether in Israel or without, and it is he who sustains people and gives life itself. So what's the point? What's the author showing us here? We see the rise of this this great evil, this evil king, and it's contrasted with the rise of this great man of God. Why? Well, the text is showing us One of the ways that God answers apostasy, it shows how God addresses those who turn away from him, because God answers apostasy with faithfulness. God answers apostasy with faithfulness. This is the point of the story. How does God respond to the faithlessness of Israel and its king? Does he wipe them out? I mean, has it finally gone too far? He'd certainly be justified in doing so, right? And this isn't exactly the first time Israel's gone astray either. Just take them out. No, that's not our God. That's not Yahweh. Our God responds to apostasy with faithfulness. It's both God's faithfulness that we see here and Elijah's. The faithless king is confronted by the faithful prophet. And I want to try to emphasize to you what a huge deal this is. God answers apostasy and faithlessness. He tries to get everybody back. Do you see what this this says about God, about his character? I mean, was God under some obligation to create the nation of Israel for himself? Was he compelled to give them the law and make a covenant with them? Did God owe the Israelites an explanation of what would happen if they turned against him? Did God have to confront Ahab? Of course not. He didn't have to do any of these things. That's the kind of God he is, right? He's a God who reveals himself to people. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Why? Because he wants us. God wants us. He reveals himself. He gives us his word, his prophets, his own son, his spirit. He disciplines us. He encourages us. Why? What's all this for but to get us, to remake us? To restore us to the relationship with him that we were made for that this whole bible the whole project church this whole deal That's all it's about I mean the first three chapters, right? It's about the fall of man. We've lost god And at the very end We're back and everything in the middle is god getting everybody back That's who he is. That's what he does. That's the kind of god we have That's the god we see in the text today. That's what this whole project is about And just look at how he does it in this text. How does God answer Ahab's apostasy? He does it through faithful people. And in this case, it's Elijah. Faithful people show us the truth. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God confronts the evil represented by Ahab. Baal doesn't control the rain I do. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God provides for the widow. Baal doesn't even provide for the Sidonians. I do. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God raises her son back to life. Baal doesn't give life. I do. What's the widow's confession? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. And supremely, we see the same pattern in Jesus. It is through Christ's faithfulness that we get God's ultimate and final answer to our apostasy, all the apostasy in the world. It's God's definitive effort to bring us back. It is through Christ's faithfulness that we find true provision Bread that will never leave you hungry. Water that will never leave you dry. It is through Christ's faithfulness that we are rescued from death itself. God answers apostasy with faithfulness. and Jesus addresses the greatest evil of all, greater than Ahab, all the sin and evil of the whole world, past, present, and future, God's answer to evil is the most faithful, perfect man ever, Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh. While we were sinners, while we were apostates, it says this in Romans 5, Christ died for us. In the midst of our own apostasy, while we were turned away from God, Christ came. He came not just to show us the way back to God, but to be the way back. He provides the way out of our own apostasy. And this story shows us something of God's character, how God deals with his people. He answers apostasy with faithfulness. He uses people. He uses people to do that. So how do we respond to this truth, To what we see here in the text? What, what do we do with this, right? I mean, if, if our God is a God who uses faithful people to address apostasy, it stands to reason that if we are a faithful people, we too will be engaged in this project. Right? For those of us who call ourselves Christians, I mean, isn't this a, a common story for you? I mean, it's my story, right? I mean, at, at 24, I'm all over the map. I'm, I'm super new agey. I'm decidedly opposed to God. I'm chasing after whatever idols I set up for myself at the time. And a faithful man named Randy, who I worked with, befriended me, and he confronted my apostasy. How many of us have a similar story, right? God uses a faithful person or people and addresses our own apostasy. Maybe it's a friend, it's a pastor, a stranger, a parent, a sibling. That's how God works. Of course, it's not the only way he works, but it's unbelievably common. So our response as faithful men and women of God is to confront those who have turned away from him. Now, this doesn't need to look as dramatic as we see it today, of course. But God will use our faithfulness to confront apostasy. This has to do with how we live our lives, how we speak, what we say, how we act. We share the truth with others. And God uses that to bring them back. So what gives us the power to do that? I mean, how, how can we do that? Well, the short answer is, is God. Who is our God? Who is your God? And before we can respond to evil with faithfulness, we must respond to God's faithfulness. I mean, throughout this text, Elijah responds to God's promises, and he receives God's faithfulness. He's the beneficiary of that response, of God's faithfulness. Elijah's promised provision from God. He trusts him, and he receives it. This pattern hasn't changed today. We are promised everything in Christ. Freedom from sin and death, acceptance and relationship with the God we long for, whether we know it or not. And the peace that comes with it all and all that's required of us is to trust in him, to listen and obey, and to receive it. And when we receive it, when we make Yahweh our God, everything changes. If comfort is your God, you won't be faithful because you could lose your comfort right? If Yahweh is your God, you already have his comfort, and you know the greatest comfort still awaits you in the next life, and you can't lose it. If the approval of other people is your God, you won't be faithful, because you could lose the approval of others. If Yahweh is your God, you already have all the approval. From the highest order in the universe, God himself accepts you and loves you just as you are. And you can never lose that. Elijah responded with faithfulness because Yahweh was his God. Who's yours? Now, maybe there are some here today who who aren't even sure about God, have have never turned away from their sins, turned towards God by accepting Jesus as your Savior. Now here you might respond to this text a little differently. Maybe you need to respond to the confrontation we see here today between Elijah and Ahab. Maybe God is confronting your own apostasy today through this message. Baal is no God. He isn't alive. He doesn't provide. Money is no God. It can't provide what you need. Relationships are no God. They can't provide what you need. Comfort is no God. Sex is no God. Power is no God. Your job, your spouse, your children, your status, your education, your country, your car, your body, your looks, no God. Let God answer this, this, this evil. Your own idolatry that's in all of our hearts to some measure, your own sin with his faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Trust in his promise. Turn from these things, these false gods that do not bring life in any measure. Trust in God, trust in Christ, and let him remake you. Turn to Jesus, worship the God who truly provides, who truly gives life. And then, go out and be faithful to him. Because our God answers apostasy with faithfulness. So I want to conclude with a with a uh, a story, a testimony, and I can uh, the band can come on up and start playing. <clears throat> there is a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and she was as far away from Christianity as you could get. She was an extremely liberal lesbian professor, and she despised all things Christian. She said, Those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and wrath. And in 1997, she wrote a scathing article against what she called The Unholy Trinity of Jesus, Patriarchy, and Republicans, which is is kind of funny. But she received so much mail from her article that in her office she, she made two separate bins, one for hate mail and one for letters that praised her for her assessment of Christianity. But she had one letter that didn't fit into either bin, and it stuck with her. And it was a letter from a pastor named Ken Smith in upstate New York. And it wasn't hate mail, but it challenged her. And she couldn't, she she couldn't shake it from her conscience. And, and eventually she started corresponding with this man and his wife. And they met, they talked, and they became friends, and he never judged her. He never condemned her, but he also challenged her. And he held to his beliefs as much as he respected hers. And finally, after some period of time, I don't know exactly how long, and despite every prior inclination in her heart to the contrary, she accepted Christ and turned from her own apostasy. How did God do that? Uh, Certainly through his Holy Spirit, through his word, but he used people. Because our God answers apostasy, He answers it with faithfulness. So as we respond today, uh, think about these two things that that I brought up of how you can go out and being faithful to God and address others turning away by loving them back to just as God wants to love us back. Or maybe you need to respond by turning from some of your own idols in your life, your own apostasy, remembering the God, who is your God, the one true God, that Yahweh is your God. So let me pray for us and we can can come up and respond. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, that you have not, you have decisively and definitively not left us in our sin and in our state of hopelessness and chasing after false gods for our lives and the meaninglessness and purposelessness that comes with all of that, God. You have answered our sin. Thank you, God, for that gift. Thank you for the cross, for your faithfulness, Lord God, your faithfulness to us, for Christ's faithfulness to you in discharging his mission to live the perfect life that we were called to live, uh, yet die the sinner's death that we should have died. So we reap his reward while he got your punishment. So thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us, for answering that. Help us respond to that today, God. Be it accepting that for the first time ever. Be it repenting again from idols we've set up in our heart. Confessing that you are our God and nothing else. And for being faithful, Lord, to discharge the ministry that you've called every one of us to, Lord. To to meet others in their own place of turning. With love, with charity, with grace them back, unto the God who loves them. So thank you for this great opportunity and privilege. Thank you for your word, Lord. I help us respond to you now. We pray in Christ's name.